Good evening to you all. This is our last talk. We've uh, had talks that touched on metta. We had a talk on compassion, a talk on forgiveness, a talk on mudita. And those of you who know the progression of the Brahma Viharas recognize that we're now due for a talk on equanimity, upekka. So I'm going to define that for you in a minute, but um, it might seem a little odd that the fourth of the Brahma Viharas is equanimity. Right? The other, the other three you can kind of understand. Okay, metta. Well, that's obvious. Okay, then metta turning towards suffering, that's compassion, right? Goodwill or metta turning towards the recognition of the happiness of others. That that makes sense, right? That you would be rejoicing with them and kind of cheering them on. But what's with the equanimity? How does it fit? And what does it have to do with goodwill and compassion and empathetic joy. Because on the surface of it, it doesn't really seem to have like that juicy heart quality that the other three have. And there's a kind of uh, coolness there, perhaps. But really, it's a very important aspect of Brahma-vihara practice and indeed a very important aspect of the cultivation of mind and an important outcome of the deep cultivation of mind. Because equanimity, upekka, is deeply entwined with wisdom. Wisdom which you could define as a mind that understands how reality works and accepts how reality works, how reality is at any given time. And then within that frame, sees what can be done, sees what can't be done, and finds the maximal place of non-resistant power. So let's take a little bit of a look at what some of the definitions of equanimity are, and then I'll say a little bit about what equanimity isn't. Um, And we'll take a a look at how it can be cultivated and, and why you might want to cultivate it specifically. So I'll offer you an image first. So imagine someone who is a master surfer. I just saw this feature story recently about somebody who surfed an 86-foot wave. (laughs) And the, the shot I saw of this was this huge, huge, huge wall of water. And from the distance, the shot was taken. This little tiny dot of a a person, presumably on a surfboard, surrounded by this. It was all behind him like this huge, huge mountain. And you could see it was way above him and just getting a sense of that the mass of that the weight of that the power of that that wave and the vulnerability of the little squishy human on the board 
I was like, wow. Now that's confidence. Because <laughs> that would seem to be like one of those things where uh, you might only try it once, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but the, But this image of surfing is something that often comes to mind for me when I'm thinking about equanimity. Both the what's involved with surfing, but also the process of cultivating the ability to surf. So when you think about what someone does when they're surfing, she's completely connected with both the board and the water, right? It's not like somebody is standing there rigidly on a board. If you look at somebody who's surfing, they have their feet in a certain position on the board. The feet can move, but the body right, is making adjustments fairly continuously in response to what's being sensed from the board in relationship to what the water is doing, right? There's fairly constant, you know, when you look at these surfing competitions, it's like often fairly constant kind of moving, right? Going forward on the board, going backwards on the board, standing higher on the board, dropping down the board, distributing weight to one side, distributing it to another. It's moving. It's complete balance, but it's dynamic. It's moving. It's not stiff like a, a stick. And in order to learn how to, to surf, of course, you start usually on land. Right? You might start with a board or something similar to a board laid out on the beach and then the instructor would you know, kind of give you coaching on how to get on it and stand up on it when it's stationary. And then later, when you got some basic understanding how to go from you know being on your on your belly to which is what you are when you paddle out, right? You're laying down on your stomach. How to go from that to that to start? Then you know, then you can move into the water. Then you can uh, start to paddle out and then try to stand up on the board and. And so what what happens when you try to stand up on the board? Any such idea? I was in Ireland a few few years ago and I was uh, I was staying in this place called Strand Hill. And uh, you might not think of Ireland as like a big surfing <laughs> country. If you know the weather of Ireland, I mean it doesn't like immediately necessarily come to mind. Uh, but it's a, a, a big surfing center and they had these surfing schools and you'd see, you know, like the, the, the adult young uh, uh, surf instructors walking down to the beach with, with uh, little kids in their little wetsuits carrying their little boards, you know, and they're going to take them out in the water and, you know, watch them very closely and give them tips as they were doing this. It was fascinating to see the Irish in their native habitat in wetsuits. But how do we learn to work with the mind? Because it's always doing its own thing, right? You may have noticed that. You know, you give it instructions and with uh, full commitment, and you know, give it give it the its orders, and then what does it do? Many a thing, but it's not just that that the mind is moving and doing its own thing. It's that reality is moving and doing its own thing constantly. 
the Buddha talks about what he calls the eight worldly winds. These, these types of experiences that sweep through every human life. He says, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, uh, renowned and ill repute. So there's, there's no way that we can get, get things to be that we, the way we want it and then keep it that way. We can't say, <clears throat> okay, I'm done with the old age thing, you know. <laughs> this much gray hair, okay, I can deal. No more. We can't say, <clears throat> I don't want the economy to change, right? We can't say, oh, I don't want the the health of my mother to change. Well, we can. And we may wish, and that even may be a very wholesome wish, maybe coming out of metta and out of compassion. But we don't control it. Things are always moving on their own due to this incredibly complex network of causes and conditions, many of which, most of which, are completely out of our control. So that's not to say we don't have some agency, right? We know we can control certain things, right? You know if you want to go home tomorrow, you can do you know, X number of things and, you know, pack up your room and get in your car or catch your ride or whatever. And then, you know, it will head you towards home and hopefully everybody will get there in good shape and easily. But there's so many things that, that we can't control. I had the experience of driving my partner to the airport a a few months ago and it was early in the morning and the dog was in the car. The dog was in the car and it was kind of like late winter and rain was forecast. The car seemed like it was in good shape when I left. By the time I was getting close to the drop-off at the airport, there were about five lights on. <laughs> and the AB, one of them was the ABS brakes aren't working, the other one was the engine is too hot, the other one was, you know, tracks, traction control is, you know, it was like all this stuff. So he took the suitcase out of the car and gave it to her, And she said, bye, honey. Sorry. (laughs) You know, one of those. We're like an hour and a half from home. And it's like, oh, God, what what can I do? Because I know lights can turn on sometimes when it's not really that bad, you know. Sometimes there can be. I thought, I got a dog in the car. It's not like I can just... mm." So the dog's already like twirling around in the back at the sight of her getting out and going away with a suitcase. I thought, oh, this will be a fun trip home. So I start driving home. I get on uh, 91 there to go up to 90. So these are major highways. And it got torrentially raining. I mean torrentially raining. Like we're, you know, one of those where you can like hardly see the car in front of you even if you're going like, you know, 40 miles an hour. And all I could think of is, what was that they it said about the brakes? <laughs> and the thought like, oh, it would be so, so bad if this car really blanked the bed right now. Because what would I do? You know, it's going to be hard to even like pull over because people don't wouldn't even necessarily see you there. And then, oh, so I got home okay. 
But the point is, stuff can happen at any point, right? Any point, any, any. So like a surprise party every moment. (laughs) So, what do we do? You know, the mind obviously is going to need some pliancy, right? It's going to need to be adjustable and adaptable and uh, in a certain kind of way find some conformity or harmony with what's happening immediately. Would you agree? Because if it doesn't find conformity and harmony with what's immediately happening, you've got a big problem. Because the one way to describe suffering is the difference between what you want to have happen and what is actually happening. That friction between what the mind is insisting be so and what is actually so. So how do we train the mind towards more acceptance recognition and acceptance of the experience of the moment and harmony with it. So this has to do with the cultivation of equanimity, this quality of mind. So in the first three Brahma Viharas, we're practicing the intention of goodwill in its three different faces. When we get to the practice of equanimity, the fourth of these, we're inclining the mind in the direction of acceptance of what is. Balanced acceptance of what is. Non-resistance to what is. Connected non-resistance that has the nature of balance. And one definition of equanimity is balance of mind, non-reactivity, which is different from non-responsiveness. Non-reactivity, equipoise, evenness. So uh, there's a Pali term, tatra majat tata, which means to stand in the middle, middle, inner stability not thrown out of balance, centeredness. And you know, maybe you've had the experience of being in the, uh, a kind of situation where it was there was a lot of crisis going on, or and there was a lot of stress, uh, maybe at work, maybe in some other setting. Uh, where it was, you know, the energy was high and it's... And then there's one person maybe there where they're just... Okay, okay, well, let's do this. Okay, we can do that. It's, it's all right. Oh, I see what could happen. Oh, yeah, well, we'll do this, right? You recognize, have you recognized that kind of person, in, at least in the moment? Maybe you've been that person, at least in the moment, once or twice. It's an interesting thing. Kevin the dog, he's featured a lot in this retreat, but Kevin the dog, he's a sneaky. Okay. He's a sneaky. So he's learned that when the suitcases come out, there's going to be a trip. And he likes to go see Grandma. So when the suitcases come out, he like starts. You know, it's like excited, excited, excited. And he sees his little suitcase come out. It's excited, 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 excited. <laughs> And he really, so what he's, he's taken to doing, usually we, we, 
when he's excited like that, we won't let him off leash when he leaves the house to go to the car. But he's taken to watching when the door opens and he'll jet out. He'll jet out. And he'll run around, run around, run around. And I've noticed, you know, we live live out in the country, so, you know, a lot can go on in the country. He's very in-his-nose kind of dog, you know. It's like, oh, I'm off-leash, off-leash. I think I'll go over the neighbors. They never let me go over there. I think I'll go over the neighbors. I think I saw a bunny over there yesterday. Right, so he's very excited, and he's running around, running around, and running around. And one of the things I've noticed is, if you get excited in relationship to what he's doing, he gets more excited. Right? The more you want him to get in the car, come back to the house and get the leash, the less likely he is to do it. So what I figured out was, he doesn't want to get left. So, (laughs) it's like how to outthink an Airedale, right? So, he doesn't want to get left. So, if we act like we're going to leave without him, he will come over. And so you take the remote, beep, 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 as it opens the back gate, And he runs for the car. He runs for the car. He gets right in the car. And then you quickly throw in a biscuit to distract him. And then you (laughs) beep, 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 shut the gate. (laughs) And this is how we train the dog as he trains us. (laughs) And it's always reciprocal, isn't it? But if we had like run around and panic-stricken chasing him, then it would be a big game, which this particular breed of dog really likes games at your <laughs> expense. So equanimity, right? You're able to keep it together. It's like you see the situation. The mind is, is clear. There's calm. There's some balance. And so then there's some potentiality for responsiveness, for choice in how you react. You're not just driven by like, oh my God, he's going to run the road. Oh my God, he's going to run in the road. If he doesn't come back, then we won't get there on time. It'll be rush hour and mom will be worried. Let's talk about what equanimity isn't. Because that's always a useful thing. Because, of course, we have our own context, and so we always tend to bring, uh, consciously or unconsciously, certain associations to certain words. So, equanimity is not suppression. Suppression. What do I mean by that? So this is when we would attempt to deal with an arising state or experience by stuffing it down, denying it, tightening around it. So this is actually a form of fear or aversion most often. So this is kind of like, I'm not going to react. I'm not. I'm not upset. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's fine. Does that sound familiar? No, I'm all right. I'm okay. No, not upset. No, my feelings aren't hurt at all. (laughs) Suppression. Not that there isn't, you know, room for suppression sometimes as a skillful response in certain particular circumstances. You know, an example would be you know, somebody who's a surgeon who had a bad fight with their 
partner on the way into work. You would kind of like want them to. They couldn't let go of it. That you would want them to kind of like find a way to temporarily put that away before they got to you. <laughs> but equanimity is not not suppression. Nor is it apathy or indifference. Callousness. Um, you know, this is where you're not actually connecting with what's going on, but you kind of are withdrawing from reality in a, a defeated or deluded manner. Or sometimes an angry manner too, right? I don't care. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't care, no. And it's important to make that particular clarification because some of the early translations, uh, English from Pali translation of Upeka would translate it as indifference. And that's really not what's meant. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a, a monk and a scholar, Um, said that's a mistaken inference that practice is to be detached and unconcerned about other beings. Instead, he says it's equanimity is an evenness of mind, an unshakable freedom of mind, a state of inner equipoise that can't can't be upset by gain and loss, honor and dishonor, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. So he says it's freedom from all points of self-reference. It's only indifferent to the demands of the ego self with its craving for pleasure and position, not to the well-being of one's fellow human beings. And uh, the meditation teacher Shinzen Young has a, has a great take on this um, difference between equanimity and indifference. So this is good enough to read twice. Equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. Apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. Thus, although seeming similar, equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations. By definition, equanimity involves radical permission to feel, experience things as they are, and as such is the opposite of suppression. Remember that image I gave you of the surfer being in intimate connection with the wave and the water and the board? As far as external expression of feeling is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what is appropriate to the situation. So you can see, by the way he defines it, he's really pointing to the place of maximal empowerment for us as human beings, where we're not driven into reactivity, but rather we we are completely connected to what we're experiencing in a way that allows us some capacity to set a direction or choose a response, or for the mind and heart to be balanced enough so that spontaneous wisdom in action arises on its own. You know, the waves of the mind come and go as they will. These different mind states some we like, some we, some we don't. Different state sensory experiences, sounds, 
tastes, smells, body sensations, sights, experiences of the heart-mind, all of which are conditioned arising, all of which change, are not directly governable by us. And this is true for everyone else in their experience. So no wonder our interactions with each other are so complex. We can often hardly know our own experience, let alone be able to have a good take on what's actually happening with somebody else. How could you know what's happening with somebody else? There would have to be some kind of clarity of perception on your part. The mind would need to be calm enough and interested enough that it can actually take in what you're hearing and seeing in relationship to that person and their communication or their situation. If your own mind is completely agitated and under the influence of a strong hindrance, your ability to actually receive communication is pretty limited. Ever had one of those conversations or seen one of those conversations where both parties are like agitated and in the grip of a strong emotional state? (laughs) One that's, you know, not necessarily fun. Ever watch, had those, that kind of conversation? It's like... It's like somebody launches a something. And somebody, counter fire. It's like... Sometimes if you're the third person in the room where this is going on and, you know, you're kind of like watching, it's like, wow, they're talking about totally different things. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not what she said. <laughs> like, no. No, he's sad. He's not mad. <laughs> it's like, You know, when we're balanced and centered and present and are touching into this quality of equanimity, there's some clarity of mind. And that's really where we have the maximal ability to act and choose in wise and skillful ways that promote our well-being and that of other people. And one of the secret powers of equanimity is that it allows us to not be driven, not to act out of reactivity, to not be moved into an unwholesome response in a compulsive kind of way. So the mind can remain un moving in a certain kind of way, like a a mountain. Sometimes this image of a a mountain is, for equanimity, is a mountain on which, you know, the the rain can fall and the lightning can strike and the clouds can pass over and the sun can beat down. and It's still there. You know, there's a lot of examples that could be offered of 
of equanimity in daily life, particular ones. I remember uh, at one point being in a room with an elderly family member who was in the process of passing away. And he was there with some younger people, kind of my, my generation. And then uh, his two sisters were there too. He was in his 90s. They were all in their 90s or close to 90s. And then there's kind of like the kids were there too. The nieces and nephews. And it was interesting, you know, because that's that's a hard thing to be present with, right? We want to be, very often want to be present. We want to be supportive of people we care about when they're in their last moments. We want to, you know, be there to at least be comforting by our presence. But it's hard. It's scary, right? It It can bring up so much. Like, what if this happens? What if that happens? You know, what if this person suffers? What if, you know... Sadness at the, uh, the thought of loss, you know? Maybe regret about something that happened in the, in the relationship. Um, it can be a lot. You know, not being sure about what you should do, whether you should, you know, what, 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 what's the role like there? Uh, how, how can you help, you know, what's really useful? And so I was there with uh, my own mother and, and my aunt and uh, some of my, my siblings and some of my cousins. And it was really interesting to watch because at, everybody was kind of like standing back around, right? So th- this set, this set, this is my mom's side of the family. This set of the family, they were all Irish. So that's a heady brew, right? Irish and Ukrainian. So this set is Irish. And I mean, you know, like in terms of culture and heritage, like completely Irish. And so they're kind of standing back. They're high on loyalty to the clan. They're not mushy. So, you know, one of the ways they deal with like stress is they kind of crack jokes, you know? So there's a certain amount of that going on. Uh, and then one of the younger members in the family actually went up to the bedside and put their hand out and took my uncle's hand and just held it. And it was like, that person kind of like broke through. I kind of broke through a little bit. So they're they're holding his hand. And then it was interesting because then his two sisters kind of pulled their chair up. So they're getting in closer now. They're they're getting in closer. And they take their their turn holding his hand. Right actually touching his arm. You know, giving it a gentle squeeze. So what I saw in that was, okay, there was one person in the space that had the equipoise as well as the metta, the compassion and uh, equanimity at the same time, that they, they could see what would be beneficial and their mind was calm enough and clear enough and non-reactive enough that they could offer what was in their heart in a specific kind of way. And then that kind of like broke it, 
broke it up for for other people to to come in closer and uh, and then of course with that process it kind of feels like at a certain point what's appropriate is actually to not keep holding on to someone physically at least that's my experience some point you almost feel like okay you don't want to be the the tie that seems to be holding on to them when it's time for them to let go completely. But the mind has the flexibility to see that and to modify what is being acted upon in the interest of really expressing that meta and compassion in a way that's most useful under the circumstances. So let's take a look at what goes on in equanimity practice because it's actually a full practice in and of itself. Just in the same way that we have particular phrases for metta and phrases for uh, karuna, compassion, phrases for mudita, there are phrases for equanimity. And there's a particular sequence of offering equanimity to beings too. So this is the relational aspect of equanimity practice. If we have time, I'll talk a little bit about Vipassana and how it, it supports equanimity. So here's an equi- some equanimity phrases that you might use for yourself. May I be at peace with the way things are. Right now, it's like this. No matter what I may wish, this is the way things are. This is what it's like for me right now. May I meet this with ease and balance. This is my life. May I meet my life with ease and balance. May my heart be wide enough to hold the joys and sorrows of life without being broken by them. My happiness and unhappiness depends on my intentions and my actions, not on my wishes for myself alone. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, live supported by my karma, Whatever karma I shall do for good or ill of that, I will be the heir. That's the classic version. That's saying what I'm experiencing now has something to do with previous intentions and actions and how one has shaped consciously or unconsciously one's mind and experiences. And that we should be intentional and wise about our future actions because they bear consequences. 
It's not a saying everything that happens to you is your fault. It's basically saying what we experience has something to do with us. Now, one of the things that's come up in the practice meetings, um, a number of them that I've had, has been this question of caring about others and what to do when that is overwhelming or when one is feeling drained by it or one's own life energy is being, you know, totally absorbed into trying to change someone or hold them up. You know, sometimes we can hear these these teachings of metta and compassion and the rest, and the way the mind takes it in is making everything okay for everybody else is my job. Or maybe your job is limited just to one or two specific people. So there's a difference between metta and compassion and codependency. So what's the difference, you may ask? Codependency uh, happens when there's not wisdom in your mind. When there's kind of an overreach an assumption of more responsibility for someone else, then you can actually come through with and or taking responsibility for somebody else in a way that allows them to not take responsibility for themselves. You know what I mean? So here's some meta, some uh, equanimity phrases that kind of highlight some of those points. So one is, this is for dear ones and neutral people, etc. So this is you saying this in relationship to another being. This is your life. May I meet your life with ease and balance. No matter what I may wish, this is the way things are for you right now. Recognizing your own limitations to make things different for somebody. No matter what I may wish, this is the way things are for you right now. May my heart be wide enough to hold the joys and sorrows of your life without being broken by them. It's another way of saying, may I offer what I can and have my goodwill be unfaltering without taking on responsibility for something in a way that becomes destructive to me. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your intentions and your actions, not on my wishes for myself. That seems to address a situation where you want somebody to be different in some sort of way so that it would be perfect if they would X, Y, Z. Here that's a reflection on one's own individual span of control and relationship. Oh, this relationship I'm in, you know, 
I just really, 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 really want it to work in a particular way. Well, of course we want a good relationship, right? It's not like you can jump in there and, you know, grab the steering wheel of somebody else's life to get it to be that way. Well, you can try to. Under certain circumstances, somebody might be asking you to, right? Here, take responsibility for my life and my mind stream. You are the owner of your karma, heir to your karma, born of your karma, lives supported by your karma. Whatever karma you shall do for good or ill, of that you will be the heir. So again, that's a a reflection on things arise because of causes and conditions. And part of the causes and conditions that cause things to arrive are our intentional actions of body, speech, and mind. So if we want things to be different we should be wise in choosing our actions of body, speech, and mind in order to to free the mind. So equanimity practice can be a really powerful practice because it it combines this um, kindness and goodwill of metta with this tempering of wisdom in relationship to ourself and others. It's like the wisdom aspect comes in with equanimity practice and reflection. When looking at the other Brahma-viharas, in particular, Compassion, you, you, if you remember, one of the near enemies of compassion is, is uh, grief. So equ- equanimity helps us to accept the truth of how things are. So we can actually be of maximum benefit without driving ourselves into a state of distress and suffering in the attempt to be of use. So it's working with the grain of reality. It's working with things as they are. It keeps that aspect in mind of connection with things in real time, with some clarity and some flexibility of mind, pliancy of mind, instead of having like a rigid goal in relationship to a situation, it can see more easily what's called for. So this quality of equanimity is really important in the Buddhist understanding and it shows up in practice in a lot of different kinds of ways. So it shows up as one of the paramis, one of the paramitas, the perfections of the heart. It shows up in Brahma-vihara practice as a direct cultivation uh, in the relational field. It shows up in concentration practice as one of the four material jhanas, the experience of a deep state of concentration that has the flavor of equanimity in it. And it's um, part of the whole cultivation of insight in Vipassana practice. In fact, if you look at the seven factors of awakening in Vipassana practice, this is 
in the secular way that this is Vipassana practice is sometimes um, described as mindfulness practice. That mindfulness practice would be like, kind of like the introductory idea of keeping the mind in the pre- present moment and knowing its experience in real time in an ongoing way, being present to experience and knowing it in an ongoing way. That's the foundation for Vipassana practice, what's called insight meditation. Where the mind is turned towards knowing its experience in real time, moment after moment. Allowing what is arising to be there and finding mindful, wise relationship to it. And sustaining that kind of attention to things in real time which allows for the deepening of concentration and the gathering of a lot of other wholesome factors of mind, including equanimity. And why, why would the mind become equanimous in watching immediate experience in an ongoing kind of way? It's because when you start doing that, you start to see the conditioned and impermanent nature of things. You're seeing it right there at your, your five physical senses and in, at the heart-mind door. You're seeing all these different experiences arise and have their expression or have their display and then at a certain point they pass away and something else happens and that's there and it's changing the whole time it's there and then something else comes and it's different and now this is happening and now this is happening and now this is happening and the mind starts to get the idea hey (laughs) there's nothing really to to grab at or hold on to I can't I can't really control this show Not that we don't try. (laughs) We start to see, okay, the mind grasping, the mind resisting, the mind going offline, going out and having a delusion vacation. But we start to realize, okay, things are happening, they're arising, they're passing away, they're coming, they're going. Oh, everything is impermanent. I'm not actually in charge of what I'm experiencing moment to moment. And of course we don't like that much. But if we keep watching, we kind of get over that (laughs) objection because we realize, well, you know, that's suffering. Isn't that the definition of suffering? not wanting to experience something that there are causes and conditions there for you to experience. Fighting with it. Trying to keep it from happening or trying to make something else happen right now. That's of a more preferred version. Mm. So after going through the not liking it part, uh, and the struggle for control, at a certain point, the mind actually settles back. So now it's accepting the arising and passing away, the flow of changing experience. It's just allowing it. It's kind of dropped its resistance. And now it's seeing things as they are, as they say seeing things as they are and it starts to come to some or some understanding. Oh, the way to reserve the energies of the, the body and the mind is not to get entangled with fighting with immediate experience. It's actually to dedicate the energies of the body and the mind to knowing what it is in real time. 
harmonizing with it. Dropping the fight with reality. So this is a description of the state of equanimity, right? And deep equanimity is the state from which classic experiences of enlightenment arises. Why? Because the mind is so present to what's happening that um, pattern of fighting to get something to happen or not happen drops away. So then now your energies are reserved for moving in the direction of appropriate response, which comes out of clarity and that comes out of the constellation of all these wholesome factors of mind that flourish when we don't have the experience of being overwhelmed by the hindrances. So if you look, if one were to look, for instance, at the statue of the, the Buddha or Kuan Yin, take a close look at the, a good Buddha statue. There's something about how they're posed where you can see the equipoise in the being, right? You can see the balance in the posture and in the face. There's complete presence there and complete relaxation. You can see the peace of it, the peace of the experience. So interesting that it's completely connected, completely allowing. completely empowered for appropriate response. So this equanimity, uh, you could say in a certain kind of way, is an emergent quality of the heart and mind that is very closely associated with wisdom. Meaning, how how do you get to be wise? What's wisdom? Well, at the beginning I was saying wisdom has something to do with seeing what's happening, letting, uh, being closely connected to things, understanding reality, understanding how reality works. What leads to what? What's the skillful or appropriate angle of entry to take into situations or experiences or what's the skillful means in terms of relating to our own mind state. That's wisdom. How does it arise? It arises out of close attention to the way things are. How do you get close attention to how things are? Well, you learn to work with the mind so it can sustain presence to its experience in a skillful way. So it can cultivate the wholesome and let go of the unwholesome. And that's exactly what you've been doing here. I just put it in a bigger frame for you. (laughs) So you may think it's all just been about saying phrases. (laughs) You've really been training the mind in what what is skillful, what is wholesome, what is onward leading, what is to be cultivated, and in the process, uh, nourishing the heart-mind. Educate, educating it. Oh, yeah, it would be good to have some more of this. Right? 
educating it and training it. Oh, this is a suffering state now. This is a cross current. This is a cross current to what I want more of. How do I be with this? How do I work with this? This anger or this resentment or this sadness or this greed. Okay, I see it. Ah, I see it. Yes, I see it. That's the best. Now, all I have to do is find the right dog biscuit and throw it in the hatch. It's like you're training yourself. So let's just sit for a second or so. May the many wholesome seeds we've planted here today flourish. And may they open and be known for our benefit and for that of all beings everywhere. May all beings awaken together. <laughs>